Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from alpha to, omega to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 30th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, 20th of April 2013 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. If you would like to help keep the show on the road, you can click on the donate button on the podcast website. You can also listen to me tweet on Twitter or perhaps watch me place my face in a book on Facebook. This week's guest is Professor Peter Wadhams, Professor of Ocean Physics and Head of the Polar Ocean Physics Group in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge. Professor Wadhams is an expert in Arctic sea ice and is a review editor for the Physical Sciences component of the upcoming 2014 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, Fifth Assessment Report. We discuss the precarious nature of the Arctic sea ice, the end of Arctic summer ice altogether, the problems with the IPCC process, climate change tipping points, the release of massive quantities of methane into the atmosphere, and the likelihood of southern Europe turning into a desert in this century. We join the conversation as the professor tells us how his work has changed over the last 40 years. Initially, we always used to work from the surface of the ice, uh, working from ice camps and ships. And uh, also, uh, I work, was working from submarines, man, uh, from Navy submarines working under the ice. But in recent years, things have changed towards autonomous uh, experiments. That is, um, instead of using a manned submarine, you use an autonomous underwater vehicle, which is unmanned, and you program it to run under the ice the thickness for you uh, instead of working on the ice drilling holes and so on you use drifting buoys which do all the measurements that you need and transmit the data by satellite so there's a, a move towards uh, autonomous work rather than being there all the time yourself and what has been the change in the sea ice over this period uh, well it's been there's been a really spectacular thinning and retreat of the sea ice we first of all detected thinning from submarines. Uh, I found that the the thickness of the ice had declined by about 15%. That was 20 years ago. And then 10 years ago, it had decreased by more than 40%. So the thinning was was really accelerating. But people as a whole weren't recognising that because the area of ice in the Arctic was only decreasing very slowly. So it looked as if it would go on for a long time. But uh, from what I was seeing from a submarine, it was it was it was thinning out. It, so it was getting getting much thinner, whilst only declining in area quite slowly. So at some point, a collapse would happen that the, the the summer melt would become enough to melt all the ice away, and it would suddenly collapse. And that was what I was predicting. And that's now what's what's actually happening. So if the area is now smaller and the ice itself is thinner, what's been the overall change in the volume of the ice over the last 40 years? 
Uh, well, that's gone down because the combination of, of the retreat and the thinning, the volume's gone down enormously. And uh, the, the summer volume now is less than 30% of what it was 30 years ago. That seems a very worrying change. Uh, yes, I mean, it, I think uh, at this rate, within two or three years, there, there won't be any ice at all in the middle of summer in the Arctic. There'll still be plenty of ice in the winter, but it'll all clear out each summer and then has to start afresh growing each winter. If we put it into layman's terms, then, if we have, say, a pond covered by maybe a half a centimetre of ice, it could all perhaps disappear in one warm day. But if that ice was 10 centimetres thick, it could last maybe a few weeks. Is this why the thickness of the sea ice is so important? Uh, yes, that's the reason that, that because it's thinner to start with at the beginning of summer now, because of less growth during the winter because it's warmer, then it means that, that the melt rate is also greater because of the summer be, summer's being warmer. Then it, it can all just melt away during the summer months and you'll end up in September uh, with, with no ice at all. What is the effect then of wind and wave energy on this thinner summer ice? Uh, well, because it's much thinner, it breaks up much more. Uh, so as well as retreating much more, the ice that remains is is also more broken up and very much more mobile. It's it's just moving around and, and uh, melting much more quickly. What is the current orthodox view on how long the sea ice will be around for? Uh, well, there's a kind of a, a, a complete uh, difference of opinion. There's There's the people who actually do measurements on the ice and people who do very high-resolution models all, all agree that it's going to go disappear within two or three years. But there's people from the government office uh, labs, like the Met Office, the British Met Office, who uh, say, oh, well, it's, it's going to last another 30 or 40 years in the summer. But that that's not based on any observations at all, and, and it's it's very hard to, for them to justify it. And I think they really just feel because they're a government lab, they have to be very complacent and and mustn't sound alarmist because the, maybe their government pensions are, 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 are threatened. So there's an amazing amount of complacency in the, the people that you would hope would, would actually be more responsible, the people who advise the government, and but they, they're not basing themselves on observations and measurements at all. Are they basing themselves on the existing models? Uh, yes, they are, I think. Um, but those models have already been shown to be completely uh, inadequate because of the, the way in which treat of the sea ice up to now has been much faster than any models have, have predicted, except for these new models which are incorporating all these new processes. But the standard models, which the Met offices use, have been shown over several years to have been completely inadequate, but they still persist in using them. What is the main problem, or are there a number of problems with the current models that are used, say, by the 2007 IPCC report? Well, the 2007 IPCC report is, is completely out of date. It, it's, it's been replaced this year, and uh, I'm one of the uh, very large committee that's involved with the new one. Uh, but it, it was out of date even in 2007 because IPCC assessments have to be based on published work. So when it came out in 2007, it was already based on work that had been done in about 2005 and 2006. And so it missed the big 
uh, year of massive ice retreat, which was 2007 itself. So it really is completely out of date and, and shouldn't really be used. But the models that were, were in that, uh, the set of models that IPCC used, uh, have been shown to be completely wrong as far as sea ice predictions concerned. What, what is it in, that's missing out of these models that are included in the new models? Well, um, the new models take account of, of all the, the smaller scale processes that go on as the ice retreats. I mean, one of them is that as the ice retreats, uh, there's a lot more wave energy in the Arctic because the, the open water allows sort of wave production and the waves break up the ice around the edges of the ice cover and accelerate the retreat by, because the, the ice becomes broken up and the broken up flows out. So there's, there's an accelerated retreat because of waves. There's an acceleration because the, the melting ice reaches a state of weakness whereby even without the waves, it breaks up. Once it breaks up and you're creating lots of open water areas, those open water areas absorb a lot of solar radiation and melt the remaining ice and it goes. So there's a kind of accelerating effect that, that once the ice has retreated to a certain point, um, that the further retreat is kind of guaranteed. And another thing is the, the distribution of, of ice motion in the Arctic due to the wind uh, has driven most of the old ice out of the Arctic so that all you have left is, is first year ice, ice that's only grown that winter, which in itself is thinner and more likely to melt during the summer than the older ice would have done. So I watched on YouTube a press conference you gave in 2010 to the European Geosciences Union General Assembly. And you, you said there you expected the sea ice to take maybe 20 to 40 years before the summer would be free of ice. What has changed so much in the last number of years that you now think it's going to be maybe in a handful of years? Well, it's firstly the the increased um, melt rate that's shown by the, the increased thinning rate. And the fact that if you combine the thinning and, and, and the existing retreat, it's, it is spiralling in towards a zero level of, of summer thickness, of, of summer extent, in, in about uh, two or three years' time from now. And I, 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 was, I guess I was being complacent then. I, I thought back in 2010, I had, I had prophesied rapid retreat in some, some places anyway, but it sounds like in that one I was being a bit complacent maybe being the same as a as a government lab and not wanting to stick my neck out too much but uh, i guess i don't mind doing that now because it's very clear what's going on and we can't uh, do, you know you, you have to face up to facts of what nature's doing so how, how thin is the ice now in the in the summer compared to what it used to be um well it's that the average thickness now in in the arctic is maybe well it, it's difficult you can't really to quote an average because it's a mixture of undeformed ice, which is maybe a minute and a half thick, and ridges, which can be uh, up to 30 or 40 metres thick. But you, 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 if you add the two together and get an overall average, it's maybe two and a half metres, something like that, over a lot of the Arctic now, when it used to be about five or six metres. So it's come down a lot. And um, given that you now get two metres of melt off the bottom every summer, it really is very, very vulnerable. In your models, is there a critical threshold below which then we see a, a real rapid disintegration? 
Uh, yes, that, we've, we've reached that. This um, what's happening now, and, and the last three or four years has been this this rapid disintegration produced by the the melt rate matching the growth rate. So uh, I think we can we can say that's now happening. We saw it this summer, this last summer, and I expect it will continue during the, the, the coming summer and be complete in maybe two or three years' time. The telephone rang and it jumped off the wall. That was the preacher paying his call. He said, look at the shape that the world is in. I've got a cut price on salvation and sin. So long, been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, it's been good to know you. This dusty old dust is driving me home, and I've got to be drifting along. What impact do you think lack of summer ice would have to, say, the climate change predictions contained in the upcoming IPCC report? Um, well, uh, well, I've seen the upcoming report and it's, once again, um, although it includes a lot more recent work than the previous one, again, the most recent things are not included because the uh, the, the, this last summer's massive retreat occurred after the cut-off date for material which is accepted for the IPCC report. So that was last July. So the, the this biggest retreat ever happened in September of last year, but the new IPCC report uh, assessment only takes account of up until July of last year. And, of course, the papers are based on work which is a year or two older than that. So the, the new IPCC assessment, uh, by its terms of reference, doesn't take full account of what's going on at the moment. What's going on at the moment is accelerating so fast that basically the IPCC can't keep up. Even within the, the upcoming IPCC report, what are the expected ranges then for estimated warming? Uh, well, the, the estimate for the planet as a whole for, in terms of temperature change there's a variety of scenarios that they have depending on whether we actually reduce our carbon dioxide emissions or not. Uh, but the central trend, which is business as usual, that is we don't do anything much to reduce our emissions, which is basically the way we're living now, that gives you about a four degree warming over the planet as a whole by the end of the century with an amplification in the Arctic by a factor of two or three. So it'd be eight or 12 degrees in the Arctic and about four degrees in the planet as a whole. There's no way we can, uh, we can keep to the two degrees that politicians have talked about. Let's assume then that you are in charge now of the IPCC report and that you could put in your new models. What, what effect would this have? Do you think, uh, perhaps there's no clear answer to this, what kind of difference would it make to those warming predictions? Well, if you could use really latest results, have some sort of appendix that, that would use latest observations, latest results, then, of course, it, that then, then the, the prediction of Arctic's disappearance would, would be changed. But in terms of prediction of global warming whole, there's, there's a big unknown, which is the contribution of methane. Um, at the moment, the IPCC predictions assume that 
there isn't a, a much of an increase in methane content of the atmosphere. But there's a couple of things that seem to be happening with sea ice retreat. One is that there's a lot of methane being released from the seabed in the Arctic, from, from offshore permafrost that's, that's melting. And then the, also the permafrost on land is beginning to thaw, and that's, that's generating methane from the, the, the surface part of the permafrost that used to be frozen year-round and now is partially thawed in the summer. So we might be getting a big kick of methane from the offshore permafrost, and then a longer term kick or a longer term sort of additional methane emission from the terrestrial permafrost. And both of those would accelerate global warming. So we would end up getting a, a higher rate of warming than IPCC at the moment predicts. But we don't know that yet because when people go up to the Arctic in the summer, they do see huge plumes of me coming off the seabed but it's not clear what it's doing it seems to be increasing the methane levels in the atmosphere but it's, but the process has only just started in previous warming events on the planet what was the role of methane in those well it's not clear um mostly the the natural warming and cooling events i mean the the uh, ice ages were were driven by astronomical causes that is slight changes in the earth's orbit and orientation and the little greenhouse gases kind of went with the temperature change the carbon dioxide content for instance if if the planet cooled down towards an ice age then there'd be less vegetation and there would be less co2 in the atmosphere so that carbon dioxide was the main indicator of temperature change and methane was was a minor player really because there are natural sources of methane but most of them are are man-made so when we talk about methane effects now we're talking about things like leakages from pipelines and domesticate animals with uh, pigs and cows and uh, are all releasing methane and it's man's activities are a big contributor to the total methane production in in the atmosphere and natural sources are relatively minor but you of course you can call melting permafrost a natural source but uh, the permafrost is melting because we're warming the climate up what is the range of temperature increases we could likely see from such a type of kick the fear is that it could maybe double the uh, that, I mean, some of the worst predictions, assuming that l large amounts of methane are released, is that in the short run, anyway, it, it could actually double the rate of warming. So this would say be eight degrees or twelve degrees. Uh, yes, that that could that could take it right up to that. Um, but methane is short-lived, and um, if methane decides it's going to come off uh, in a great big burst, it, it only lasts in the atmosphere about seven years. So. We might see a big boost to global warming, but then, then we go back to the kind of rate of warming that's due to mainly to carbon dioxide after a, a decade or two. And how intense is the warming caused by methane, say, compared to carbon dioxide? Well, it's per molecule, it's about uh, 20 times as powerful uh, a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. So even though there's small quantities of it, it's, it's a very, very powerful gas. We hear talk sometimes of a tipping point. Is this a major tipping point that we might see in global climate change? Well, I think, yes. I mean, I think we've reached a tipping point with sea ice. 
when it's gone in summer, it's n- it's not going to come back, and that that summer disappearance will actually gradually grow. That the, the ice free period in the summer will actually widen out. So that's a tipping point in a sense that we're we're never going to go back to having sea ice year round in the Arctic. But climate change, global warming itself, well, it, it's something where we we might be able to to rein it in but that would involve really major decreases in in carbon dioxide emissions change the way we live radically and possibly some kind of technical intervention as well like geoengineering how are your how is your results being accepted have they been taken on board by the governments around the world or is it still only trying to bubble its way up <laughs> well um it's it it, it it's accepted in many places. I mean, it, it, it's accepted that there's a, a distinct possibility, if not a probability, that climate change is accelerating due to these factors. And we have to be prepared for that. So it is being taken on board now, even by government Met offices, and also certainly in, in terms of formal government policy. You can leave now, or you can stay and hear what I have to say. I'm going to charge the same anyway. I won't take your money. That's a new one. You must trust your initial impulse and consider leaving him. You'll never be able to feel good about yourself. You'll never be able to call the feelings of guilt and shame that you talked about. As long as you're his accomplice. You're wrong about the accomplice part, though. All I do is make sure he's got clean clothes in his closet and dinner on his table. So enabler would be a more accurate job description for you than accomplice. My apologies. So, do you think I need to... Uh, to find my boundaries more clearly. Keep a certain distance, not internalize my... What did I just say? Leave him. One thing you can never say, that you haven't been told. In the UK this year, we've seen a very, very cold March are these type of events linked to the retreat of the sea ice? Well, I think they might be. There's been a, a whole paper produced by scientists who think that it is. Um, I've always tended to be cautious as I was sort of taught from an early age not to confuse climate and weather. So if you look out your window and it's snowing, you, you mustn't conclude that the climate's got colder. But I think the thing is that the, the weather patterns last winter and the weather patterns this winter, both in, in Europe and in the US, to be quite similar. And it, it seems to indicate some change in the position of the front between polar and tropical air, the, the, jet, the position of the jet stream. And that there were papers being written which tend to show that this could be due to, to sea ice retreat. So it, it does hasn't proved it, but it's certainly there's mechanisms which have been put forward which would 
relate the weather patterns in the winter in Europe and North America to the retreat of sea ice. And if that's the case, then we're going to get this kind of weather every winter from now on. What other tipping points look like they're near to being tipped, if that's the right term? Or is this an isolated tipping point we have seen? Well, there's a lot of tipping points people have talked about. Um, I don't think we're as near in other respects as we are with ice. One point is acidification of the oceans, that the oceans are getting more acid. But but when it gets to be so acid that marine life is affected and, and you don't have the growth of shells in marine uh, plankton and also that dead plankton shells falling towards the seabed dissolve before they get there, that, that means that carbon is not being lost and is being recycled. That that's that becomes a tipping point then because it, it it's affecting the the whole marine life cycle, which is most of the life on this planet, uh, and affecting how much carbon dioxide is absorbed by the ocean, and meaning that less is absorbed and more goes into the atmosphere. So that that there's a an acid ocean acid tipping point which we haven't reached yet, but maybe that would be reached in thirty or forty years time. In the past, we've had some major extinction events. Have they been linked to any of these tipping points that we speak of? Not really. Uh, well, the, the, of course, the extinction of the dinosaurs was because of an asteroid strike. But there was an earlier extinction, which is not really explained, but does seem to have been a, a climatic one. And... Um, it might have been a sort of an extreme ice age effect, but people are only just beginning to, to think about that. I mean, it's uh, we can't really draw that many lessons from from the past. What we're doing to the atmosphere now is, is sort of unprecedented. I was wondering if you could just speak to what, because when people hear two degrees or three degrees or four degrees warming, what these would mean for the normal person. Like, what would four degrees mean? What would six degrees mean? And in our lifetime, say I'm a 35-year-old man, say in 30 or 40 years' time, what are the current predictions looking like, say, for that period, say mid-century? Well, if we think that the average for the planet will be four degrees in, by the end of the century, then it'd be about two degrees by mid-century. For, for Europe, I think one thing is that Western Europe is going to warm more slowly than Central Europe. Britain, Ireland, Western France, Norway every coastal parts of Europe that are exposed to the Gulf Stream, there'll be a countervailing effect because of the, the thermohaline circulation, that's the overturning circulation in, in the Atlantic, is itself slowing down. And that's meaning that less heat is being transported up towards the pole in the Gulf Stream. So um, we, we, we don't get cold, but we get warm less rapidly. So the predictions actually for Britain and Western Europe and, and it, it, Europe Atlantic coastline, which includes um, sort of Ireland and Western France, is for about two degrees uh, this century. Uh, so, so we get off lightly in a way, but Central Europe and Southern Europe will have about four degrees. And that's a, a huge difference because it's also accompanied by a reduction in rainfall. So it becomes more parched. So we can imagine Southern Europe, Italy, south of France, Spain, all those countries will become like North Africa is now, uh, pretty much desert. So that will have an enormous impact on 
people's way of life and agri-production will be really severely hit in, in southern Europe. They'll, they'll have to get used to the idea that they, they're becoming like North Africa is now, and that, that's a massive change. And what kind of change would, say, maybe a, a massive reforestation program mean to such predictions? Well, it would it would have an impact. I mean, that's one of the things that's been proposed that geoengineering, which is trying to, to change the climate by technical means, the best kind of geoengineering is natural geoengineering. You know, plant a lot of trees and uh, there are places where they won't grow anymore. I mean, for instance, one of the predictions of the IPCC which is likely to be to be valid is that the Amazon rainforest will shrivel up because rainfall over the Amazon is is going to go down by about 40% during the coming century so even if we don't don't cut the trees down which is what we're doing at the moment they'll die off anyway because of lack of rainfall so the the, the places that you plant a lot of trees have to be places that are not predicted to expect big rainfall losses so this is all a very depressing palette. What are your positive hopes for effecting change in current economic and political policies? Um, yes, it, it is very depressing because um, I think what I find most depressing is the fact that all the evidence we've got, all the latest scientific evidence is pointing to acceleration of warming and things getting worse more quickly, which is pointing to more urgency of action now, not waiting and not thinking, oh, by such and such, it will reduce our emissions by such and such a percent. You know, we can't wait that long. We've got to do something now. And we're not doing anything now because it hasn't yet happened because it is happening. We can see trends happening. We can see the ice disappearing. We can see changes in our, our weather. But because it, it hasn't happened to an extreme extent yet, Nobody's prepared to do anything. People, on the whole, will will avoid taking any action until disaster is staring them in the face. And by then, it's too late. What is the whole momentum of the system? Do we have an idea for how difficult it is to turn around this super tanker? Well, it is very difficult. It's, it's surprisingly difficult because when global warming was first really identified as a major problem, which was in about 1990, Already in, at that time, when the first assessment of PCC came out, there was a whole range of measures that were proposed for reducing carbon emissions and going for renewables. And everybody was confident that, that those would be done and swing into action. And by you know, within 20 years, we would be on a new core of the world. But 20 years have gone by and absolutely nothing has been done, In really nothing. And it's not only nothing, it's less than nothing, because in 1990, it was general acceptance that this is a, a catastrophic situation was beginning to develop and we better do something. But now, thanks to the actions of, of some of the uh, sort of well-financed climate denial industry, people are made, have been made to be not sure that it's happening. So therefore, the feeling is we needn't do anything because it might actually not be happening, even though it very clearly is. Uh, so we're actually not even as far forward as we were 20 years ago. And it's very difficult to see how we can develop sufficient sense of urgency to take in enough action to avert the catastrophe. There's always tomorrow. An impassioned drama as real, as honest, as uncompromising as life itself. 
Clifford Groves had a business, a wife, three children, and a maddening feeling of frustration that comes from being trapped in a web of indifference. I'm tired of the children taking over. I'm tired of being pushed into a corner. I'm tired of being taken for granted. And then Norma Vale came back from out of his past, bringing exhilaration and excitement, and setting in motion the dark, ugly rumors that brand people. What impact would all this have on Marion, the unsuspecting wife? On Vinny, the son, and Anne, his fiancée. On 16-year-old Ellen, in a panic, now that their safe, secure world was crashing around them. Please, don't take Daddy away from us. Don't take him away! I'm sorry I'm late. One thing I've interviewed a couple of people about on the show is some people interested in the peak oil theory, how we're approaching our peak or maybe slightly past our peak of oil production. Do we have any hope perhaps from these theories playing a countervailing tendency to what's in the IPCC reports and research of your own? Well, I suppose, of course, as the oil starts to run out and get very expensive, then there will be a reduction in oil use. But the trouble is, firstly, it would have to be a much bigger reduction than anybody's contemplating. For instance, um, if we want to keep the global warming to two degrees, which is what politicians spout about, then we'd have to keep about two thirds of the remaining oil in the ground. We'd have to not uh, actually produce two thirds of the oil that's left. And nobody is saying we should leave oil in the ground. All they say is, well, we should be uh, more careful in our use of oil. We shouldn't waste it on on driving SUVs. We should use it for pharmaceuticals and pesticides and fertilizers. It's too valuable to burn in cars. But nobody's saying, let's not drill it at all. Nobody's saying, let's not dig up all the coal that's left. Everybody's saying we have to use the remaining fossil fuels. But if we use the remaining fossil fuels, the amount of CO2 that will be released will be enough to tip us right into a really catastrophic warming race. So we're not taking, I mean, the oil is is only, in a way, it's a minor issue. If we ration our use of oil because it's expensive and, and has passed its peak, it only slightly reduces our total carbon emissions because the compensation will be using more coal, which is what Chinese are doing. But it it will make life more difficult in other ways because it will make it much more expensive to produce pesticides and fertilizers and produce food. So there'll be a food crisis as we, we find it more difficult to produce this sort of intensive food production that's needed. So there'll be the other nasty spin-offs from oil passing its peak, but it won't really do do as much good as far as CO2 emissions are concerned. Does the IPCC report talk much about impacts on the demographics of the planet? Uh, No, it doesn't. And that's a big, uh, uh, it does say something about it, but it doesn't really take it as as seriously as it should. And then, of course, that's because it has to be kind of signed off and agreed to by all the different countries involved. And lots of them just don't want to think about population explosion uh, as being a, a contributor to the general um, kind of catastrophic trends in, on, on the planet. But but it is. And we, we should be taking that much more seriously. And But it's, it's not really taken very seriously in the IPCC report. 
Well, thanks very much, Professor Wadhams, for coming on the show today. Okay, pleasure. Well, I hope it hasn't been too dispiriting, but I think we still do have a chance to do something if we really take action urgently. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, Woody Guthrie in the Dust Bowl saying, So long it's been good to know you, and Carmela Soprano and her shrink, accompanied by Mendelssohn's Scottish Symphony. You also heard the trailer to the 1950s film, There's Always Tomorrow, and you are now listening to The Cars and Bye Bye Love. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>